don't take anything for granted. If you're approaching business in different parts, and it's not out of your comfort zone, you don't know anyone. So try to listen more to people around you. And I failed to do that. I failed to listen to my parents. I had radical ideas totally against them. And they tell me it's not going to work uh. and I don't listen to them. Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast made for and by change makers, where we gain the courage to own our story, the freedom to own our craft, and the power to own the future. I'm your host, Lucas Grobot, and thank you for being with me. Today, we have with us Nadja Faisal from Lebanon, who lives in Saudi and has worked there for many years. But the story that we're going to focus on today is one that really encapsulates everything that we talk about here and have been talking about here for a while now on Own the Future. And that is how can you and I step into our purpose and make a change, not just for ourselves, not just for our egos, not just for the temporary moment, the things that we can see in front of us, but to see a change that has rippling effects into the future that actually shapes and forms society that impacts the, the, the most valuable people in our society, our children. So without further ado, here is the episode with Naja. Naja, I'm really grateful that we're able to uh, get on a call together and talk um, thank you so much for being here with me. Pleasure. And uh, I wanted to start off, I wanted to start off with um, hearing a little bit about you, what you're doing, your background, and then I want to move into um, what I found was really interesting about your story, which was the whole aspect of leaving your job in Saudi, moving back to Lebanon, and working for um, a non-traditional school. And so that's where I'd love to go and end up. And I have a lot of questions surrounding that and concerning that. Um, but first, um, you work in digital marketing. You you call yourself um, an activist and you also do public speaking. Um, can you unpack some of what those three things uh, look like in your daily life mean to you and how um, and even why you, you use the word activist? So, you know, I um, it's 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 an interesting story, and I um, and I really look forward to share it. Uh, basically, I started like a normal um, teenager guy, um, finished high school, went to college, and studied in a uh, university. Um, at that time, it all was normal. I was a, an athletic person. Um, I was not a reader. Um, I only wanted to pass my grades so that I graduate. And then uh, as soon as I graduated, I uh, found a job in, um, in Dubai and then transferred to Saudi uh, for a client to work on here in Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, all the lifestyle that I've uh, raised uh, up to uh, uh, and 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 all the things that I'm used to, and the friends, and the family, and the community, and the lifestyle, uh, has all shattered all of a sudden when I moved mm. to a place where I know nobody. And then, um, you know, um, I was recommended to uh, read two books um, uh, when I came here. So I brought I brought these those two books with me. 
and one was uh, Who Moved My Cheese. It's a very tiny book. Yeah, yeah I'm familiar with that book. Seven, yeah, and then The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's another so, great book. <laughs> you know, I, I, I still want to go back to the person who recommended those two books and like kiss him on the cheek because uh, he, he, he really did uh, a great thing. You know, he uh, made me um, read the um, moved my cheese on the airplane and I did and then um, made me read The Seven Habits which are two effective books to start up your uh, principles and value system. And then uh, from there, you know, I became a, a reader um, and, uh, you know, as, as I was living alone here, so I could uh, manage to have a lot of time for reading. So I went into it full-fledged uh, books from cover to cover um, and on all sorts of uh, topics and ideas. But the most uh, important uh, category of, of, uh, of, uh, that I read a lot of books about was, you know, tr trying to make an impact on the world. Mm. You know, try to uh, develop yourself to a point where you can influence others into doing, uh, into restoring um uh, a lot of things in the world that we find not working well. So, so I want to uh, pause you in that point of your story, just so I can recap. So you're like 22, 24 as you're moving to Saudi. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I think 22. And no, what, um, so you were lucky to have those, those books that you had a, someone in your life, a mentor, presumably, um, who recommended you read them. But I, I want to hear a little bit more because I think especially in, in this day and age with globalization, people are moving far more frequently and moving to places where they don't have a family network. They don't have friends. You know, when I, when me and my family, we, when we moved here to the Khalij, um, I experienced a lot of the same things. It was all of a sudden like, wait a minute, I don't know anyone. Um, so I just want to hear a little bit what what were some of the, the, the process that you walked through um, during that first year and a half, two years um, in Saudi and maybe some of the things from those books that helped you really focus your life and get through that time? And maybe how did you begin to build um, a healthy rhythm of relationships when you got to Saudi? Well, to be honest, uh, even until now, I, I, you know, after spending a long, a long time, um, a long time in Saudi, I still don't feel that I have a big base of friends that I used to have. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm much more selective now. Uh, uh, but uh, but I think you know I really discovered the my priorities, and that's mm. what helped me. This isolation of all the lifestyle glamour that I used to live in in Lebanon. And when I came to Saudi, it kind of made me uh, present with myself much more. Yeah. And this helped me, um, you know, prioritize thing, things in my life. I really became um, much more of, you know, trying to, um, to better myself in many ways. Um, and kind of it replaced the void that the lifestyle has. Um, have left in my in, uh, in my in my mind. So uh, yeah, so I started reading a lot of books, um, and I don't necessarily remember like 
if you now tell me, uh, okay, I read like more than 400, 500 titles probably. Wow. And if you tell me what was the main idea of this Exxon books? Mm-hmm. So I cannot really tell you. It's like the memory is a mystery, right? So we forget a lot what we read. However, when we make decisions, they come out somehow or another. So all of this information that you absorb, they like get stored in your subconscious. And when time is needed that to retrieve, when the brain needs to retrieve those informations to find them handy. And then you, you feel, oh, what? What happened? I mean, why did I do this? Why did I do that? And then you... It almost it almost like builds a, a framework of a worldview lenses that you view different situations that you're able to then make snap decisions rather than, you know, you're not, you're not sitting and pulling up, okay, what did I read in the last 10 books that I can apply to this situation? It just becomes more of a, a framework that you're able to instantly process information in the world. And yesterday I was uh, I, I was watching the masterclass for Gary Kasparov, and he mentioned that uh, instinct is a muscle. Mm. So our instincts and gut feelings are not actually uh, um, isolated from your entire brain. They're they're the muscle right there. So you can actually train your instincts. Oh, for so sure. I think that's what reading does probably it, it just train your instincts on, on 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 everything in life basically i i love that um because it is it's like you you start to create those neural pathways and you can really dig those in so you have those those reflexes um what's that one saying that uh in times of crisis you don't rise to the occasion but you fall to the level of your training and it's really that that training your mind through reading books, um, through disciplining yourself in your life, that when crisis comes, it's you fall back to your your reactionary instincts. Um, you're not like rising to the best that you could be. It's you go down to your baseline. Absolutely. So, but Absolutely. You, and another thing that you mentioned that all of a sudden you started reading these books about making an impact on the world and. Um, I resonate with that. Um, I think this generation, right, millennials, they resonate with wanting to make a change, wanting to leave a legacy, wanting to better the world around them. Um, So as you began to read all these books and your mind moved from um, living a fast lifestyle in Lebanon that, as you described, left you empty, um, unsatisfied, a hole in your life, and you began to change your mindset um, what were some of the the dreams, the aspirations that you began to have um, in those early years? Yeah, so, um, you know, when I was in Saudi, um, I started reflecting back on my life as a kid, uh, growing up in uh, the Shuf area, which is uh, an area in the mountain of Lebanon um, that is, you know, have a lot of, like like most of the like most of the cultures, we have a lot of things, traditions, and uh, you know perceptions on things that um, that are outdated, and they are kind of very harmful to the community and to human mm. rights and to the freedoms of uh, of people. Some of them are religious based, some of them are not religious based. Um, 
But, you know, you feel that a lot of people are still believing in um, myths and uh, perceptions that are counterproductive to humanity. So um, I start feeling that if I would need to change, and, you know, let's face it, we all enter into arguments with, with adults, you know, adult to adult, they argue and they have different point of views. And you can find that there's, you can never change an adult. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's very hard for an adult person to change his beliefs just because you had a conversation with them. Um, so what happened was that I found that the most effective area of influence would be the children. Um, Absolutely. Because these are molds that, you know, uh, yes, their parents might feeding might be feeding them like false beliefs, but it's the school's role to to mold that uh, that that brain of them to at least neutralize extreme extreme thinking and extreme um, ideas. So so I found that like it's very important that I would really target the children to Absolutely. hope one day an impact on the long run. So that's what inspired me to you know go back to my. Um, to Lebanon, and uh, you know, we already had a license for a school that was uh, a long time ago um, from my father's era. And then, so I revived the school, I rebuilt uh, the building, I, um, you know, uh, start attracting more uh, students to the school. And so far, this is uh, how it grows. So uh, uh, the, I was reading that the school was founded in 1989, I believe. Is that correct? And so when you came and took over the school in 2012, um, was the school running? Was it kind of just in disrepair? Was it just a traditional school and you totally revolutionized it? What were, what were some of the things, what, what was it like when you stepped in um, in 2012? All right, so here's the thing. My dad got the license for a very um, aspirational um, reason. So, so your, dad your dad was, founded the school? Uh, yeah, my dad started the school in his house. I mean, I remember growing up in the house where there's one room, instead of being a, like another living room, let's say, it would be a classroom. So uh, we were living in a, um, in a small house, um, 250 meter square apartment. Uh, you know the whole the whole building is us, but it's only have one floor at the time, and we had uh, like two rooms in the house where my dad will is bringing students who cannot go to public school for higher education. Because here's the thing, my dad is a clergyman, mm. so he is a religious person, and the religious community in the Shuf area. Um, has a lot of restrictions on on, on girls. Uh, so girls, uh, they have to be separated from boys. I mean, I don't agree with all of this, but I'm telling you the historical background. Right. Behind, that's behind that's the context that you were working in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So girls and, and boys should be isolated. There was only one school at the time who can uh, bring those girls until grade nine. And then these girls are left in, at home because there's no other school that isolates boys and girls. So they came to my dad, who's a clergyman, working in the uh, official wow. secondary school 
And they told him, look, we want to continue our education, but we cannot go to the public school because our parents won't allow it. We are, uh, we are uh, part of the clergy community. And then the, my dad couldn't resist. Uh, wow. He said that I cannot put these girls at home and make them lose their education because of of this. So I will open a school for them, and that's that's how he did it. However, he never thought of the school as on the bigger picture in terms of impact. Yeah. So uh, he was very happy with his little shop, if you want, like his little school. It's like someone. It's the difference between. People who uh, love to have a boutique shop versus people who have to have a chain of uh, of shops. So he was the boutique kind of uh, person. So he built another floor on top of the building. And so this is how the school got expanded until the point where business-wise, it couldn't make sense anymore. Uh, So then um, my dad rented out the license to some other uh, person. And then in 2012, before I, I came, this other person left the contract or let out the contract, which means that the school now is idle for, and it stays, it stays, it stayed idle for one to two years. And then in the third year, either we open the school or it will break down. And then, you know, all of them, all of things come together. My personal belief system and my personal uh, mission statements and stuff met with a real need for me to go back to Lebanon and take over the school and try to uh, uh, make it happen. Now, we can talk about the end game and how unsuccessful yeah. it was, but uh, this is this is the, what, the, the start. What I, do you remember what your... I, I think this is really just such an amazing story that, you know, it was your dad out of this place of need, right? There's pain point in the community, you know, for us marketers out there, you know, what pain are you solving? But there's these families that are coming in with these young girls who are like, there's no education for them. Will you do something? And it's just out of sheer need that he, he started this. Um, it, and then as just kind of even that, that story arc of you having to leave Lebanon, you know, you saw your dad doing all these things, but it sounds like you were just interested in a different sort of lifestyle at that point of time, but it took you actually leaving home um, into this place of isolation where you were able to really begin to explore and discover who you were as an adult and as a young adult. Um, And then it brought you all the way back full circle to take over your dad's school, which is, I think is powerful, but what were, what, what job were you at? at the time when you're thinking of leaving and what were some of those, if you remember or you call those mission statements or value statements that I'm sure if you're reading um, um, seven habits of highly effective people, you're probably writing your vision down, writing your goals down every day, probably using a day planner. So what it, I don't know if you remember the you know what your, your vision statements were, but I'd love to hear some of that exit process out of Saudi, what were you feeling? What were some of those emotions? And what was kind of like the kick that really caused you to move? Yeah, I remember perfectly well my mission statement. Uh, wow. and I've, uh, I remember printing it, out, uh, printing it out on my bedroom. So uh, yeah, it was to um, 
uh, inspire and change the world through education and technology. So, uh, so this was like the top line wow. uh, statement, I think, at the time. Uh, but you know, it's 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 more of trying to uh, form an educational institution that actually plays a major role in the minds and the shaping of the minds of the kids. This was the ultimate like idea of it. And then, and then using the power of technology to further advance those ideas. So, uh, um, and this is uh, this is what happened basically. So I went back. So and, um, I love that. So, but you're at a you're at a job. You're doing marketing in in Saudi in Riyadh. I'm assuming, and yes. obviously the schools the schools shutting, and you have this moment. Were you dissatisfied at your job? Was that part of the kind of the instigator of saying, well, I'm going to leave this and go back and do this crazy project? Or, you know, what what was happening in Saudi at that time when you're deciding to go back and take this leap? No, at the time I was not in Saudi, actually. So I stayed oh, no? in Saudi in the, right after graduation and I stayed for three years and then I moved back to Dubai. So I was living in Dubai, um, again, very lavish, uh, very nice lifestyle, uh, and then amidst all this, I moved in 2012. Uh, my job was okay. Um, I wouldn't say at the time when I left that I had like the best job ever. I think uh, I was I was uh, an account manager for a digital company, uh, a Flip Media. It was called now it's called Sapien Raisin Fish. And before that, I was in Leo Burnett. So of course. You know, after leaving Leo Burnett, it's hard to compare Leo Burnett with other, other, other smaller agencies. So that the atmosphere and the culture of Leo Burnett was much higher. So I, I would feel that, yeah, it was kind of somehow uh, different. And, and I didn't like get along with some people. But it wasn't the main cause. Uh, the main cause is the need in Lebanon for, to, for, uh, for a new um or a new spirit to the school yeah. because you know my you know my parents are getting older and and they they were kind of tired of of, of this so they, they needed a, a new blood and and at the same time I was like this is it you know this I could at least try wow. to change the world <laughs> so you, uh, you you know I think sometimes only the honor of trial is important yeah do you Here's kind of a left-handed question, but um, do you feel, I've been thinking about this a little bit, um, especially with, I, I am this way, so I'm not pointing the fingers, like three fingers are definitely pointing back at me on this way, um, but millennials are so set on having an impact in their workplace, having an impact in their job, wanting to change the world, um, when really that's quite a narcissistic thought and idea of... Um, as an individual having wanting to leave a dent on the universe. Um, do you feel like, do you feel like that's true or do you feel like maybe for some people it's a narcissistic idea of, um, wanting to have a really massive impact and totally shape and reshape society? Or do you think that, you know, it, it comes out of a pure heart for, for most of us millennials? I mean, look, uh, Lucas. Let's let's face it. We all have egos, and we all want to achieve things, and we all want. Huh. So I'm not gonna go tell you. You know, no. It was like a pure spirited uh, thing. Of course, we have ambitions, and now you tell me why millennials do have them and the others don't. 
now yeah why do you think i think because you know we are uh, brought up with the stories of these entrepreneurs who Sah. from nothing achieved like huge impact on the world i personally read the biography of steve jobs and uh, you know um, jeff bezos mm. um, uh, alan musk so when you read these stories you get pumped up you yeah, know they true. can do it you can do it too and you know and obviously um, when you fail you start to appreciate them even more because it's either they're tremendously lucky because it's never easy i mean in today's world it's never easy to start from nothing and and made it to the top mm. yeah i i think that's i like that that reasoning there especially because you know 100 years ago 150 years ago our path was kind of set out for us you know if your dad's a baker you're going to be a baker if your dad's a you know whatever like a a, a blacksmith you're going to do what your dad did. You're just going to follow in your family's footsteps and there's no like class mobility. But I think, you know, exactly to your vision statement with technology, with this interconnective world, with the ability for anyone to talk to billions of people for free, um, it really flattens society. And with that, I think we begin to see that, wait a minute, if I were to stand up, there is a one in a billion, 10 billion chance that I might actually make a positive impact on the world. And if I don't stand up, someone else is going to stand up and make that impact on the world. And who knows whether it's going to be for the better or for the worse. So in some ways, we have this responsibility in this hour because of how the the global culture has changed largely through the industrial revolution and now the digital revolution, um, we now have a responsibility. No longer is it just a, a luxury for the few who were born into a privileged class, but we all have some level of responsibility of making it. I don't like to use the word impact; it's so cliche, but making a making an impact, making um, a ripple at least around in in the sphere of those around us, those that that we are actually able to touch. Absolutely. Uh, I think you mentioned the flattening of the world. And uh, I remember reading the World is Flat yeah. book. And uh, it was uh, phenomenal. Um, and, you know, you write about that. I mean, the, the technology has empowered people tremendously. And people who used to believe uh, that they are insignificant now you know, with all the tools at their hands, they could probably make a lot of things happen. And, uh, you know, maybe they are, again, um, they could, um, a lot of them are only aspiring um, and, and a lot of them might fail. And I see a lot of these social media try, influencers want to be, you know, like they're yeah. trying to, you know, become become something. And, there are so many right now, so it's it's really hard to believe that all of them will make it to the top. It's just it's impossible. Um, yeah, but at least you know um, we have. I think the trend is micro influencers. So these are uh, you know each influencer will have an impact on a smaller community over time. But if collectively these influencers have similar approach and belief system towards the world 
then probably we can see change coming down the line. And that's so, and um, I'm a, and I totally agree, right? You look and you you're starting to see you know that move to micro influencers because they actually have greater depth and a greater rapport with their audiences versus people who have you know millions and millions of followers and it's as there's multiple micro influencers um really able to promote or to to encourage people into a certain framework a certain belief system that's when you begin to see um those progressions and um likewise you know right now we're seeing that um, against big business is all these micro businesses that are, you know, it's death by a million paper cuts. Um, and so it really, I think that's where the world is going. It's going back to kind of those small business death by a million paper cuts, um, not just in the, in the economic sphere, um, which I think is, is a positive thing because it's, it's free markets, it's capitalism, it's economics that are empowering and lifting people out of poverty more than any other system um, across the globe. Um, and so seeing those micro-influencers and micro-business initiatives, um, especially across developing nations, um, that is really powerful um, development. And because of that, I can see why you would say, okay, well, it's chalas. I'm not going to be able to change a 30-year-old's mind. Chalas, I'm not going to be able to you know, the 50-year-old business guy, you know, he's not going to change his way of thinking. But if I can get them at 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, um, I would be able to help instill a healthy framework, a healthy belief system, a healthy work ethic, a healthy way of using and um, operating with technology and with a community um, to have a much longer lasting impact, even though I might not see it for 60 or 90 or 120 years down the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and you, you spoke a lot of great ideas um, about like what technology is doing and what the small businesses and small and micro influencers. And if you think about it, about the global trend of technology, um, is also flattening the world one more time. Mm. Like if, if you look at the blockchain technology and, you know, the concept of it, you know, the people who work on it and try to come up with an alternative to the massive giants that nobody can compete with anymore. So um, I believe that blockchain technology is, to, is made to compete with Google and uh, and uh, I don't know GoDaddy and all the big centralized data centers who um, who are dominating the market basically right. and controlling that. So uh, here you go another frame of technology that might flatten that world again and make every person. Um, uh, you know, every computer around the world a processor. Mm. For, for to to process information instead, so instead of centralizing the data centers with Google, so now millions of people around the world are doing the processing work that Google used to do. Um, if if that makes sense, yeah. So blockchain uh, is another attempt to uh, to flatten even the technology and uh, 
you know, decrease the dependence on centralized systems. Now, that's why probably the, this technology has been uh, um, fighted uh, and uh, people and a lot of governments don't agree with this technology, although it's super secure and it's more fair and just uh, in the world, if you think about it. So um, I don't know how, how experience uh, you have with blockchain or, or how much knowledge you have, but I think you know, it's it just matches what you were saying right. um, about about what 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 the trend is for the future. No, I mean I have like elementary knowledge. Um, I, I haven't gone deep into studying blockchain, but I do know that it it could very well disrupt um, a lot of trusts, as in Google, Facebook, um, governmental financial systems, um, which I think part of the reason why that it, it has so much resistance is because governments need to be able to move finances um, without a distinct paper trail for a lot of um, their activity, activity that's not necessarily illegal, uh, t- activity that's not necessarily harming people, activity that's actually protecting um, the interests of their people. Um, so I can see why a lot of governments would be resisting it as it really hamstrings them and to be able to do kind of things underneath the table, but I don't want that to sound like it's all corruption. I think there's a lot of things that governments do underneath the table um, and broker deals between nations um, that blockchain could quite easily disrupt. Is that what do you, is that correct, or why do you think? Um. You know, I um, I just happened to watch um, some videos on the blockchain technology, but uh, I was really impressed not only by blockchain technology per se, but by, I believe there are like five new technologies today that might really bring human beings towards a different level. Mm. So uh, if you think of consciousness as the first major stepping stone to human evolution. So, you know, humans were animals like anyone else, and then they become conscious. So this was a major achievement. I think in 100 years, with all these technologies mature, they're going to take us somewhere else entirely. Um, Now, um, so, and these technologies are... Um, artificial intelligence, of course, right. genetic engineering, big data, 5G, probably, um, Internet of Things, all of these things. Right. If they converge all together, uh, you know, it's really hard to believe what human, humanity would be like uh, at one point and what we could discover even about space and about the Earth and about the planets and about our psychology and our brain, how does it work? So we would have a long journey to discover all of these things. Um, and um, so, so, so yeah, so I think I, I'm passionate about these things these days. Um, you know, I've been uh, watching out these technologies for quite a while. And uh, yeah, I was impressed by block te- blockchain technology because at least, at least the currency you know, the currency associated with it is a real currency. Yeah. Because here's the thing. 
you've got the dollar. The dollar was supposed yeah. to have a gold, an actual gold in front of it, like to match it. The but gold nowadays, standard. You know, they're printing so much more paper than they have gold. So where the, the, the Bitcoin or any other blockchain currencies, they are actual physical currencies. Why? Because if you do the mining and you participate in processing data for, for others and you consume electricity and, 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 and hardware to do that, then you earn, you know, it's like you're mining gold and you get gold. And then this is the same way in the digital sphere where you mine data and you get your compensation. So, uh, right. so yeah, I mean, right. it's, just, it's just interesting technology. That's all. I mean, I'm not the, an advocate of it, or I don't know a lot of details about it, but I'm just interested. You know, the thing that always the thing that always throws me with blockchain, uh, or at least with uh, you know Bitcoin digital currencies, is that because so it's it's this both it's this you know double edged sword one. Unlike the dollar, which moved off the gold standard, which was a bad idea, um, because now the the dollar is tied to nothing, and all the global currencies are tied to the dollar, and so all the global currencies are essentially tied to nothing. And like you said, um, you know, right now the U.S. just uh, approved a two trillion dollar bailout um, due to COVID, which obviously the government needed to do something. But um, right now, I think the the U.S. is 22, probably now 24 trillion dollars in debt, and there's another 24 trillion dollars in entitlements that are off the books. So we're really 40 trillion dollars in debt as a society, and um, people are going to be coming to knock on those doors within the next 10, 20 years as um, the baby boomers all reach into retirement, retirement, and Social Security goes bankrupt, and there could be real problems. So the good thing about Bitcoin is that it's tied to it's actually tied to something. But the thing that confuses me in my mind, if if I own Bitcoin, there's no incentive for me to actually buy something with Bitcoin because Bitcoin will always be an appreciating asset, unlike um, U.S. currency, where it where it depreciates over time and due to inflation. So that is kind of one one thing that's always kind of hung up in my mind, but I'm, I'm also not very deep in the technology. I'm not really deep in knowing how people are actually operating that technology. But I, I we digress a little bit. I want to move back a little bit in, in the story to what were some of the things that you, when you started the school thinking, okay, I want to leave an impact. The way to do that is to impact children, to empower children, kind of walking in the, the footsteps of your dad. Um, and you wanted to use obviously worldview, obviously um, um, different soft social skills, anti-bullying, um, and also using technology, like even having tablets and cell phones with the kids in the classroom. Um, I want. I just want to know what were some of the, the things that you began to implement? And the, one of the reasons that I always am I'm, I'm asking this, just to give you a little broader context, so maybe hopefully we can go a little bit deeper into this than just a, a surface level conversation on some of the things that you did was that I look at the education system now, probably much in the way that you do. It was set up for the industrial revolution, right? It was set up for people to sit down and learn compliance for eight hours a day so that when they 
graduated and they left the education system, they were able to go into a factory, they were able to get a job, check the right boxes, fill in the right bubbles, and have compliance. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Stand up. Sit down. Right now, and I talk about this a lot on the show, is that technology, AI, is, is already starting to disrupt industries across the globe. We saw it with Uber. We saw it with Amazon. Amazon bought out Whole Foods. Like it is, it is not coming. It's already here. Um, AI and self-driving vehicles is going to replace the jobs of hundreds of millions of truck drivers around the world. One guy is going to be sitting in India driving, you know, a dozen or two dozen trucks at a time as they caravan across the United States these people are going to be put out of jobs. The The towns that the truck drivers would stop at are going to be put out of jobs. The little diners that truckers would would eat at, it's going to evaporate. Um, so I, I'm always thinking about this. I'm thinking about this as I'm raising my kids, as we're pouring into our four boys. Um, what, what are some of the things that you are initiating or had initiate, initiated and continue to think about initiating um, when it comes to raising our kids for a future that is very uncertain, how are we going to prepare ourselves, our kids, uh, the, the kids that we teach in our in our programs? How can we empower them to actually succeed in a world that we have no idea what it's going to look like come 2030, come 2040? You know, in 20 years when my five-year-old is 25 and looking for a job, what are the skill sets that you think that they need to have and how can we Absolutely. implant those seeds now? I mean, uh, if you just have a conversation with any kid today, they really, and they are right so, rightly, accuse the school system as uh, outdated and Adopt. they are totally right about it. the school system or the education educational system, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, so the school system is, 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 is built on the idea that the, the kid's brain is like a pot, an empty pot, and you need to just fill it. But today, kids have phones and they have Google and all the information they possibly can get and much more than the information they, they are yep. getting from school. It's already under under fingertips. So they don't regard schooling as intellectually elevating for them. And I, I, and I agree with them, it is not. And unless we start having different priorities, then we cannot, uh, we cannot succeed. So the first two things that I did was creativity, and technology savviness. So, you know, I went to the school in Lebanon and I was like talking to the kids in different ages and different classes. And a lot of them, they really don't know, a lot of them don't even have a computer, a lot of them. So, I mean, again, the purchase ability in the Shuf area was, was, it's not like a rich place, but it's okay, it's like average. But, uh, but anyway, so the, the idea is that the priorities I, I uh, wanted to, to have in the school are technology savviness 
and not only in consumption of technology, but in creating on technology and creativity. So I want to grow these two areas of the brain of, of my, of my uh, school students. And this was my real focus. I wanted these two areas to be prominent more than, you know, uh, the languages and stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I started, I brought up a program uh, to help kids uh, do the coding. I got uh, robotics from Lego uh, Robotics. Wow. Um, so I've added that course on the school program. So we've got now two technology courses in many schools in the in the in the neighborhood. They don't even have a computer in the entire school. So and I brought the iPads in every student uh, pocket. So three things right off the bat that made a tremendous shock in the society. So here's the school. Not only they have like technology classes, they have three of them. And for, to make, to, to, do, to, to be able to do that, you have to take out sessions from other traditional topics like math and science and stuff. You cannot, because usually the schools are packed with these uh, sessions. So three sessions went to technology and I think around also another three sessions went to arts and and two sessions went to sport. So I kind of cracked the entire system uh, back then, and society rebelled against me. So, so here's, here's me trying Wait, so is to... Wait, in in so is that in a day? Uh, you had three tech session classes, two sport classes, and three art classes, or that throughout the week? Throughout the week. So I, I, I stripped down a lot of the traditional, like let's say, math you have, math for grade four, you have to give them five sessions per week, let's say. Yeah. That's the normal, right? So some schools, due to the, you know, they have a big ego. In the, so they will say, okay, I want to have, instead of six sessions per day per student, we should make it seven. And then we should add one more hour for math and one more hour for English, one more hour for... So this was the atmosphere in the area where I started a school that instead of adding more hours on the traditional subject lines, I'm stripping down hours from the subject line. So you can imagine the amount of worry that the mother of the kid who is in my school right. saying to herself, right. saying to her friends, Oh, uh, my my kid is in chapter three, and your kid is in chapter five. Why your kid is advancing much more than my kid? It must be this school that I my kid is is bad. So you know, and 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 they, I tried my best to tell them to appreciate the long term impact of this, but it was the wrong time. Um. I think you're right in that kids are in school for way too long, right? They're they're getting leaving for school at you know six thirty, six fifteen, and they don't get back home from school till three thirty, four o'clock, and uh, it really stunts the kids' ability to to play, to explore. It stunts their creativity. Like you said, they're just cramming facts in their minds rather than exploring art, exploring 
um, being physically active, exploring technology, exploring just being able to be creative and then probably go home and bond with their siblings and play outside. Um, that is a, a huge, I think, differentiator um, between what the classical sort of uh, industrial revolution is pushing and really where I think uh, we need to be going as society, which is less hours in in an actual sitting down classroom, because even now, you know, look what's happening with COVID-19. No longer are we able to be in a work environment where we're being watched every moment, but we have to learn how to self-initiate from our own homes when no one is watching. And so I think that's part of it. And I love that you included, you, you cut less hours in a day and you included more sessions of technology, of sports and art, um, which really those are going to be the differentiators and they're going to, they're going to learn math. They're going to learn math as they go in technology, in art, um, because math is needed, language is needed in technology, in sports, in art, communication is needed yeah. in sports. And so I, I really love um, how you set that up and did that differently. But you began to say that, yeah. and naturally teacher or parents are, are naturally worried that their, their kid is falling behind, um, exactly. especially when it's in a, a really driven society where um, you want to make sure that your kid is getting the right marks and the right grades so they become an engineer or a doctor. When that's when that's baked into society, um, that's really detrimental and um, it can be very hard to change because like you said, you can't change the 30, 40, 50 year old's mind unless it's already been primed and ready to do so. Um, so you were facing a lot of pushback from parents and you said that's ultimately why it failed because you it was just too much too soon um can you kind of explain a little bit more of that part of the story how did that all unravel for yeah. you so uh the shuf community the shuf area of the shuf district is is a mountain villages the collection of villages and towns uh, in the mountain of lebanon and and you know usually people there work in agriculture or in um there's like there's no big businesses or big companies or whatever, so they're more uh, you know and the purchasability is limited as well to them, so they don't have access to great um, great things uh, in the modern urban cities we live in today. Um, with that in mind, I mean I still have a base. In my views, was like I have a base, I have a school license, which is very hard to get. And I have and I have a building that I improved and you know renovated and and everything, and of course you know I took uh, my parents out of uh, the home and renovated the entire building and you know got an, another apartment and and have them living there. So in order to make a school project that's worthwhile, um, so in the beginning um, it was attractive to people. So when I first announced that the school is going uh, uh, bagless, so the student don't have to carry a bag full of books and so heavy towards the school, instead I will do electronic versions of these books and put them on an iPad and then 
students can get the same information. Plus, I managed to get deals with publishers that they will add videos to these textbooks because now it's an electronic version, so you can add and embed some some videos. So imagine you're the teacher is trying to explain a scientific phenomena about I don't know plasma or anything like that, and then she can ask the kids to click a video and see it in more uh, details. And there, this these ideas got a lot of attractiveness back then. And all of a sudden, I have a school full of 250 students. Wow, which is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean the first year was uh, was. Actually, the second I, I joined the school in the middle of of the of 2012, and then 2013 uh, school year was phenomenal. Was 250 students right, and stuff. Amazing. And then it it you know I had a, a lot of different problems that led into me quitting uh, the school. Uh, uh, so the school the students start to decrease gradually, and. Again, I mean, I'm trying to reflect back and see where, what goes wrong. Of course, poor financial decisions from my side. I did trust in people who I shouldn't have trusted in. Hmm. So a lot of them, um, you know, you know, you you trust a supervisor with a lot of roles, and you empower them, and then they feel that they can, you know, take the students and go and have their own or school. And that's kind of what happened. So I trusted a, a supervisor uh, a lot and uh, I gave him a lot of authority and stuff. And then he felt that, yeah, I can have my own school. So he took some of the teachers and some of the students um, and, and opened his own school. This was one of the things that made the school go gradually down. Plus, and let's face the hard truth, the reputation of the school was damaged because of the things I changed in mm. the school. So the example of uh, cutting main subjects uh, sessions down and increasing a lot of play uh, play sessions right. made the reputation. And I heard it myself from people saying, Oh, this uh, Baldwin school is a school where they they, they, they let, this, let the kids play. And this, this is only what they do. They just play the kids or play with the kids or let the kids play. So they, they never took it seriously that this could be a, a proper educational approach. <laughs> and, and, and I also kind of empathize with them because they, we have a Lebanon official, official exams. So right. the government is official exam. So if I don't actually work towards the official exam, then I probably would ruin the future of these kids. So somehow they have a point that, you know, yes, you know, they need to pass this official exam. But at the same time, I'm raising kids here and I want to raise them well. And I want to prepare them for the future 20 years from now. So this was the dilemma I was facing. One point is that there's official exams that I need to prepare kids for, but then I would have to strip down all the arts and technology classes I have because they don't exam. The examination doesn't match with this. This is so I was in, in trouble there. This is a problem with standardized testing, right? It all of a sudden it sets you up for a metric that doesn't really 
it doesn't, it's not an indicator of whether you're going to be successful in the long term in the real world. All it does is it indicates whether you were able to study and memorize certain things that you know are going to be on the test. Well, that's like the antithesis of what we need in the future. It's how can you have a framework? How can you have a belief system? How can you have an operating system? Going back to the beginning of our conversation where you have the instincts built in, that training built in. So when you face an unknown situation, you're able to go out and learn and find a creative solution for that problem. And so you, uh, yeah, you were in in a rough spot because I see, as you said, that the parents, they want their kids to pass the test so they can go to college because otherwise their future will be damaged, which in the short term, yes. But there's also an equal argument of saying, hey, if you put your kids in those schools and they pass that test and they go to that university and pick up a ton of debt, their futures will be damaged because in 20 years when they're they're hitting that point in their career, everything's going to pivot and shift on them. And it's it's most likely those who are are creative problem solvers, they are going to be the ones who rise to the top and actually solve people's pain and solve people's problems. And this is one of the biggest problems that's happening with the educational system in America is that we have moved away from the kind of entrepreneurial um, Western frontier sp- spirit, and we have moved to compete with China and Korea on standardized testing, which actually isn't a proper indicator of what we need for the future. It's just an indicator of memorization, which, as you said, it's on Google. Exactly. It's on I'm Google. Um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you look at that. I mean, it's not only a Lebanese problem, it seems. I've also heard about the American standardized tests as well. So as you can see that we still have big, big problems in this world. So yes, we have achieved a lot and we put, put a man on the moon and, and, and do all of these things and, and we know a lot of things, but yet the world needs a lot of work still. Uh, and that's probably, uh, you know, that's probably what you're trying to do probably with this show is to probably highlight some of the problems we have in this world. And, and that motivates me that there's still things that you can do to, 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 to try to, to, to change the world somehow or another or, or, or try to have at least a contribution yeah. um, in, in, in the world's problems. Um, because, you know, I think being a passive human being who eats and sleeps and, uh, I don't know, uh, regenerate, uh, to be honest, it's just probably this is the, the faith of us all that nobody will really hear about us after we die. And uh, I should probably be friends with this idea. But so far, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want it. I don't want it to be this way. I really feel uh, very dearly about legacy and I don't know if I'll ever be remembered but I want to be remembered for at least contributing to the best, to the best of my ability to a worthwhile purpose so um, that's at least you know what can um, make me wake up every day excited to to, to spend the day in, in, uh, in a good way 
So at least it, it helps me wake up, wake up very well. And, uh, you know, we can satisfy our physical needs, um, but there's the, you know, the needs of the soul, basically, have, uh, to feel that you have really um, helped somehow, um, helped people and helped the world and helped humanity. Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on that. You know, wanting to wanting to leave that legacy, um, not necessarily wanting to be forgotten, while realizing that more likely than not, you know, we will we will all be forgotten, at least here on this earth. Um, even the most even the most famous of peoples, um, you know, we we remember parts of what they did, but we don't necessarily know who they are. And I think it's the longing of the human heart to be known um, in a deep and intimate way. And so I, I think there is that there, I think there's something that's been placed inside of us um, that is our, our purpose in this world, which is to, to serve those around us and to, to better the world, to, to be loving, caring, and compassionate um, and to sacrifice so that someone else can succeed in their life. Um, so I do think that's, I do think that's the case. I do think that's the case. Um, Nadja, yeah. just wrapping up here. Um, if you could go back and change something about the way, the way that you ran that school or the exit of it, um, what, what would be like some of your regrets? I think a lot of times people would be like, live with no regrets. I think that's stupid. I think if if we live with no regrets, we never reflect on the past and we never learn to not repeat those mistakes in the future. So what are some of your your regrets and what would you do differently that maybe um, we listening can can glean from and learn from to maybe not repeat your mistakes? Absolutely. Well, I did a lot of mistakes. Um, and all of these mistakes, you know, if, 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 let's start with them. So basically, I used to work in Dubai at the time. So I'm, I'm dealing in, in, in business with big clients and I was and I'm working in an agency. So I handle budgets of a big amount of marketing budgets for clients who are like on a very high level, uh, like global brands and stuff. And when I went back to Lebanon, I thought I know it all. I know everything. I mean, I was working with the best. So, of course, everything I learned in my career will be applied right away. However, I went into a totally different market, totally different culture, totally different values, totally different everything. And none of these worked. So whatever worked in Dubai couldn't work in, in Lebanon, and especially in the district where I, where I was. So this cost me a lot of money because mm -hmm. I was, uh, yeah. And also, um, I think I didn't have a proper grab on the situation financially. So I couldn't really manage to get proper, um, you know, financial mind to run, to run this business. And also, um, I didn't really understand the people well. So I think I, I, we, we got lost in communication. Mm. Um, I trusted wrong people, as I said. So I have a lot of regrets. And if I come back now, I could do a lot of things, I think, better and probably have a better chance of succeeding 
Um, but I got so much pain from that school and from that period of my life that I feel very hard now to go back and, and redo this again, unless the situation is, is, gets much, much better and much, much more ready for businesses like these. But uh, so, so my advice to everyone is that don't take, don't take anything for granted. If you're approaching business in different parts and it's not out of your comfort zone, you don't know anyone. So try to listen more to people around you. And I failed to do that. I failed to listen to my parents. I had radical ideas totally against them. And they tell me it's not going to work uh. and I don't listen to them. You know, and... And it's not, it's not only like, like you have to follow your parents' footsteps exactly. No, of course not. But at least they can give you a pulse of the culture. There. You know, I've, I left the shoe area a really long time. Long, and, and 2006, I, I was out of the house. I was 17 years old and I went to study in university in a different district. So I have no idea... Oh, uh, of, of the culture, how, how it evolved. And then after university, I, I traveled immediately. So yeah, I couldn't, uh, I didn't listen well to the people in general, uh, which is as marketeer is a fatal mistake. I right. Always listen. <laughs> right. That's like the listen. fatal mistake. <laughs> practice what I preach, right? So, oh, so yeah, um, I thought that I can be like Steve Jobs where, where, where all the research come and tell him, you know, the, the touch point doesn't work and he still do it. You know, you yeah. know what I mean? I was living yeah. in my head at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, this this obviously didn't uh, work quite well. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I think, I think you know... Um, uh, you know, you should really know uh, that being a business owner is very different than being an em- employee. And uh, the pressure you get from suddenly being a business owner, if all your life well, you were an employee, you get different types of pressures. And for people who used to dream about having my own business, I want to have my own business. And they think lightly of it. It's it's not a joke, and it's not a journey, and it's not a trip. It's a hell of a lot of pressure, stress, anxiety, depression. You you know, and and the fairy tale of of fast success. You succeed fast. You make a lot of money fast, and you all you do all of these fast is a myth. Again, yeah, it doesn't complete exist. myth. So all of these myths were living in my head, and I went there and I bust them all. And I think that's the most uh, precious thing I got from this experience is the education that it left. And uh, this is the ultimate goal I would wish for. I I am a little shocked to hear that. Uh, I'm not shocked. I mean, of course, of course that would happen. But that as a marketer, you're like. I don't need to know my market. This is going to work. I just find that um, just so it's, it's deeply ironic at how sometimes we can be blinded um, by our own ideals, our own ideas of success. And um, even that, that Steve Jobs story um, when really that is in that piece of communication, especially as, as marketers, right? That piece of communication 
of understanding the culture and the lay of the land um, that we're the territory that we're trying to launch um, a product or a service into um, that to me, that really just stuck out so much that if, if we come in moving hard, heavy and fast, um, we're going to break a lot of things and in turn get broken rather than really coming in, coming in low, serving, listening, understanding um, those, those cultural nuances, which, you know, you were even from that cultural nuance when you're growing up. But um, as you said, it had been at that point, what, six, seven years. Um, yeah, man, it sounds like, it sounds like a, a painful experience, especially one with uh, that betrayal involved. Um, but one that you learned a lot. So what, in closing up, what are you moving into? Like what, where are your sights set? Clearly you're still passionate about these ideas. Still, clearly you're still, um, diving deep in, in learning, progressing yourself. Clearly you still, um, have that burning desire to leave that, that legacy and that impact, um, through education and through technology. Um, where can people find you and what are, what are the, some of the things that, that you're pressing into right now and change that you're looking to, to continue to make? Um, you know, I, I, I also, part of my learning is that capital is, is, is very important. So, uh, uh, you know, all I'm doing now is, you know, thankfully I have a, I have a good job and uh, I'm um, able to, uh, you know, uh, better myself in different ways. But at the same time, I'm building up uh, capital and uh, hopefully, um, you know, I start with some investments. Uh, and uh, with time, I probably, uh, you know, if all the financial planning happened to be uh, well planned, so I probably can have uh, some good amount of investment to, uh, to be able to invest in any project that I find uh, meets my my. Um, meets my uh, values or what, what I really want to do um, to impact the world. So I think I'll be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm building some sort of um, uh, capital and I'm speaking in conferences and going on talks like these. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also very, very down to earth person. I'm just like, uh, uh, I'm continuing my life. Normally, I go. Uh, I love uh, to have fun as well. So, uh, uh, um, so yeah. I'm. It's just a. You know, you live your life, but you only keep keep something in your head. You know, keeps. It gives you like kind of a track. Right. Track that you follow, even if you do everything that everybody want, everyone does, but you still. In the back of your head, you know where you're going in the end. So I think this is what's most important. Do you do you still keep a vision statement on your wall? Um, I, uh, I I don't have now, to be honest. No, I think I need to work on it again. But I have different sorts of uh, you know. I I've written a blog recently about my values. So that that's done. I'm more of a uh, digital now, uh, um, and I read a new a new blog on, um, and I actually wrote a new blog about how religion meets science, uh, and so yeah, I think I, I I put my ideas now in writing. So I love that. 
Well, Naja, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Um, I I really love talking and exploring a lot of those ideas. Um, I am thinking about those things all the time and how I raise um, my boys, me and my wife. We're always kind of thinking through that. Um, and I love seeing, I love seeing someone, um, who risked a lot and especially it's sometimes harder going back to your, to your home, to your hometown, to, um, try to make an impact, but seeing someone that took that action that did what a lot of people only talk about, right? So many people talk about, you know, one day I'm gonna, and you actually did it and you failed and you learned from it and you're clearly continuing to move forward into that direction, into that that vision that is planted deep within your heart. Um, and so I just, I have so much respect for you. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how things continue to play out in your life and the impact that you're going to continue to make through education and through technology. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for choosing to spend this time with me today. I always enjoy spending time with you. So thank you for being here. Also, if you are in lockdown and you are struggling to keep your mind sane, I have just a thing for you. My book anchored the discipline to stop drifting. I wrote the book out of a season in my life where it felt like lockdown. Everything was stripped away. My relationships are stripped away. My sense of meaning and purpose, my metrics were all stripped away from me. And from that place, I wrote this book and it helped me navigate and reorientate my life around the things that actually matter. So please go and check out my book, Anchor the Discipline to Stop Drifting. The link is in the show notes. That is all for today's episode. Remember, I'm Lucas Grobot. You are a change maker. And if you own your story, you will own the future.